Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today to talk about tax-efficient investing is Jimmy Atkinson. Jimmy is the founder of the Opportunity Zones Database, which is the leading independent authority on OZ investing. Jimmy was one of the first to recognize the tremendous potential of the OZ tax incentive. And over the last several years, he's been one of the leading advocates for OZs. He's also the co-founder of Wealth Channel, which is a leading community for high net worth investors. Jimmy, thanks for joining me here. Michael, this is awesome. Can't wait to get going here on Tax Efficient Investor. Let's do it. All right, let's dive right in here, Jimmy. So you have said that OZs are the greatest tax incentive ever created, which is a pretty bold statement. So let's dive in here. Give the listeners the high-level summary of why you think you can make such a bold statement about the, the tax savings here. Yeah, it's a bold statement. It grabs people's attention, which is what I intend <laughs> to mine. do. Yeah, grabbed your attention. I think it's why I'm on the show today, right? So <laughs> right. I do think it's the greatest tax incentive ever created. Investors in opportunity zones are afforded with the ability to get unlimited tax-free growth from within their opportunity zone investment. I liken it to a super Roth IRA, essentially. And we'll break down a little bit more throughout the course of our discussion, I think, Michael, how exactly the tax incentive works. But just to cut to the chase, essentially it allows for an investor, once he or she holds an opportunity zone investment for at least 10 years, to escape any capital gains tax liability from the appreciation of the opportunity zone investment. So you, your, your, your opportunity zone investment grows over the course of 10 plus years. You exit it eventually, you have a transaction, you, you sell your interest, you sell your, your opportunity zone investment. There's absolutely zero tax that you ever have to pay on that investment. So Jimmy, I like to say that the best time to pay taxes are later and never. So it sounds like the OZ kind of checks both of those boxes, right? It that's can exactly. push us uh, down the road and uh, eliminate a lot of it as well. That's exactly right. I don't know how detailed you want me to get right now, but essentially there's there's a deferral mechanism at the start of your investment. And then you, you within the opportunity zone investment, you never have to pay taxes as long as you achieve that 10-year hold and the fund itself remains in compliance with the Opportunity Zone statute and regulations for the duration of your investment. So before we get into that, Jimmy, let's talk about who, who can and who should do this, because it's not for everyone. It's not something that every investor can do. There's some requirements. So who's able to take, to take advantage of this? That's correct. Yeah. So that, that's a good place to start. So this program is really intended to be an incentive for capital gains dollars, first and foremost, to flow into Opportunity Zone investments. So to begin, you need to be a U.S. taxpayer and you need to have capital gains. And then I like to go a little bit farther than that and say, in all practicality, you need to have a sizable capital gain of at least $50,000 for it to be worth your while and to achieve the minimum investment threshold that most qualified Opportunity Zone funds will hold their investors to. And then uh, one more uh, requirement or recommendation is that you be an accredited 
investor, which means that you have at least an income of $200,000 a year, or if you file jointly with a spouse, your combined income is at least $300,000 a year, or you're worth, uh, you have a net worth of uh, greater than a million dollars, which excludes your primary residence. That's the most basic definition of an accredited investor. Um, those are rules that the SEC has set in place to restrict certain investments into unregulated private equity funds. The vast majority of opportunity zones are private equity funds that, that aren't traded publicly on an exchange. They're, they're unregulated by the SEC. Um, and they're a little bit more opaque and more difficult to access, which is part of the reason why I started Opportunity DB, the Opportunity Zones database, in the first place. So I would say those are the four main requirements. One, U.S. taxpayer. Two, you have a capital gains tax liability. Three, that the gain itself is at least $50,000. And four, that you are an accredited investor. So I want to jump in on that number two, Jimmy, and just to clarify, it can be any type of capital gain. Is that right? I know some listeners are probably familiar with tax incentives, where if you have a capital gain from real estate, you can roll that over and defer. But in this case, it doesn't have to be from real estate. Is that right? Correct. It does not have to be from real estate. There's a, a similar program that Opportunity Zones often gets compared to called the Section 1031 Exchange. Mm -hmm. There's also Delaware Statutory Trusts or DSTs that take advantage of that Section 1031 statute within the Internal Revenue Code, those types of investments have to be like-kind exchanges. They have to, uh, the, the gain has to derive from a real estate transaction. With Opportunity Zones, you can also use a real estate gain, but you can use any other type of gain. It could be gain from the sale of a private business, gain from the sale from within your uh, brokerage account at Fidelity or Schwab or TD Ameritrade, Vanguard, wherever you um, have stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, any type of gain from within that type of traditional investment account would also qualify to be rolled over into an opportunity zone fund. And then you can have even a more exotic gain from the sale of Bitcoin or comic books or other collectibles, art, any type of gain. And it can also be short-term or long-term as well. So that's another question I get a lot. What, it, it doesn't matter if it's short or long, it doesn't. Just any type of capital gain can be rolled over into an Opportunity Zone fund? Good question. So, Jimmy, I want to ask you in just a minute here to kind of walk us through from start to finish about how an investor who does have this gain, who meets your four criteria, would, would go about making an investment. But before we do that, I want to zoom out a little bit. And you've talked about the intent here is to move dollars that are locked up in capital gains into Opportunity Zone investments. Could you give us some history on the program here and talk about what was the intent. Why was this incentive created in the first place? Sure. So uh, around the time that the United States was recovering from the Great Recession of 07 through 09, a few years after that, some policymakers, some members of Congress, some members of a think tank, economic think tanks in, in Washington were kind of looking around the nation and they noticed that the nation as a whole recovered pretty quickly and pretty well from mm -hmm. that crisis of 07, 08, 09. Uh, but some neighborhoods got left behind. And the inequality gap, wealth inequality and income inequality gap uh, increased tremendously following that recovery. The nation's poorest zip codes got left behind while the nation's wealthiest zip codes recovered quite nicely. So the, the, the policy goal was, hey, looking around the country and noticing all of these capital gains that have 
been generated from the recovery in the stock market and the recovery in people's incomes that they've then put into the stock market and other types of investments. How do we unlock some of that capital and get it flowing into these poorer communities around the country that got left behind? There's, there was a calculation done at the end of 2017 that estimated that there were over $6 trillion worth of unrealized gains locked away in the economy. So that was the number that these policymakers were trying to get after. So you know, when, when President Obama was still in the White House around 2014, 2015, a white paper was developed by some economists at a new think tank called the Economic Innovation Group. It was a bipartisan think tank with, with some leading economists from the left and some leading economists from the right joining forces. They wrote this white paper where they first conceptualized opportunity zones, a place-based economic policy that wouldn't be just another uh, government grant program or, or you know, using using um, government money to to pour into these poor communities, but rather incentivize private investors to take advantage of a tax incentive um, under which they could they could invest into these poorer communities. So that's that's kind of the whole genesis of opportunity zones. Uh, by the way, the, what's interesting is the the policy was first kind of drafted in 2014 2015 and introduced into congress pretty quickly and then just a couple of years later it ended up being passed as part of president trump's big tax legislation at the end of 2017 so it was actually by um policy making timeline it was actually a very quick turnaround how quickly opportunity zones got passed into law and it's still kind of early days here this this legislation's only been around for about five and a half years now, and the, the zones themselves, I'll, I'll take a, a break here before we get to that, but the zones themselves have only been around for about five years now. Yeah, well, it's a, a feel good story, right, Jimmy? There's a it little is. bit of bipartisan collaboration going on here. A not everything is as, as acrimonious as, as you might be led to believe. Yep. Um, so you, you mentioned the zones themselves, and before we kind of dive in uh, how one might actually make an OZ investment, Talk a little bit about the, the zones themselves. You use the word, this is a place-based incentive program. So there are, I think about a uh, little less than 9,000 zones or census tracts that are designated as opportunity zones. Is that right? That's correct. So it, in at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, after the statute was passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there were there was a definition of you know, what could qualify as a quote unquote qualified opportunity zone. And these zones themselves are places on the map. They are census tracts as defined by the 2010 census map and census data from 2015 and 2016 that defines a an eligible zone as any type of zone that is low income or contiguous to a low income tract I won't get into all of the technical details because we'd spend 20 minutes just parsing that. But but essentially, these are by and large low income census tracts that the governor of every state, the governor of all the overseas territories and the mayor of Washington, D.C. got to pick up to 25 percent of their low income census tracts as qualified opportunity zones. That nomination process occurred um, in the spring and early summer of 2018. And then the IRS, which is the agency that's charged with regulating this statute, then certified all of the opportunity zones in July of 2018. And there are now 
8,764 opportunity zones to be exact. They are rural, they are urban, they are suburban, they are all over the country. They can be found in every city in the country, basically all the major cities anyway, and in every state and including all the overseas territories in Washington, DC as well. Jimmy, you've put together a neat map that shows exactly where all the opportunity zones are. We will put a link to that in the show notes. Great. And you can plug in your address and there'll probably be, uh, for most people, there's going to be an opportunity zone uh, relatively nearby. Um, okay, Jimmy, that's a great background of the, the history of the program. Thanks for taking me on that little detour there. So let's dive in here. I'd like you to walk us through how someone goes about making an investment. So let's say I've just sold a bunch of Tesla stock. I've got a capital gain of $100,000. I'm interested in being a tax-efficient investor. Uh, I'm facing a big capital gain because I kept uh, big capital gain tax as a result of, of liquidating that stock and realizing that gain. So I'm interested in this. What would I do? Walk me through step-by-step. Step. Yeah, so normally you'd owe a, what would it be, a $23,800 tax bill the following April on that gain, yep. assuming 20% capital gains tax rate and a 3.8% net investment income taxes is standard for that type of gain. I'm assuming it's a long-term gain, by the way. If it's short-term, then it's even worse than that. I don't know which state you live in, Michael. Uh, no, I know you live in Oregon. I don't know what the tax rate is there. Um, California, New York, some of those other states, they get hit with a pretty high tax bill yep. as well. So most of the states around the country also comply with this program. Some don't. So check with your CPA um, <laughs> to make sure mm -hmm. what your state does. I won't get into those details. But you take your $100,000 gain from the sale of your Tesla stock, Michael. Within 180 days of triggering that gain, you then roll over that gain amount into a special vehicle that's called a qualified opportunity fund. And that fund needs to invest into opportunity zone deals, essentially, opportunity zone assets. I can get into the nitty gritty of that a little bit later if you want me to break down what a fund does, but suffice it to say, you have to roll over your gain into a qualified opportunity fund within 180 days. That's requirement number one for the investor. Um, and I'm kind of speaking to somebody who might come into a fund as a limited partner, an LP investor right now. Mm -hmm. um, that, that would be your first step really is to make sure that your gain gets into that fund within 180 days. And then I can kind of walk through um, what happens down the road there along the timeline, if you'd like me to, or do you, do you have any questions you'd like to break in with? No, that's great, Jimmy. So I've, I've realized my gain, I've uh, liquidated the stock, I've, I've got this money, and uh, within 180 days, I have selected a qualified opportunity fund. I've, they've, they've confirmed that I'm an accredited investor. Uh, I've wired them my money, so it's gone out the door, and within that 180 days, so I think so far, so good. So walk me through what happens next. Yeah. So what will happen next is um, the following April, you'll need to file your taxes like you normally do. And you would normally owe $23,800 to the federal government, to the IRS, on that gain. So you need, and, and you're going to have some of your tax return that hopefully you have a CPA prepare for you. This isn't tax advice, by the way. I should put that out there right now. <laughs> so get, deal with a CPA for, for to make sure that I'm telling you this right. But Normally, your tax return would report that you had a $100,000 capital gain. And in this case, it still will. So you're going to need to file one additional form with the IRS, and that's Form 8997. And Form 8997 basically tells the IRS that, hey, yes, I have this $100,000 gain reported elsewhere in my tax return, 
but you should know that I, I poured it into a qualified opportunity fund within 180 days. It's a really simple form. I think there's only like a few lines to fill out. It's the amount of the gain. It's the name of the fund that you invested in. And then I think you need the tax identification number of the fund. You're going to need to file that 8997 every year that you're invested in that fund um, just to make sure that you're reporting everything properly to the IRS. But then essentially, it, it allows you to escape paying gains on that amount until the deferral date. And the deferral date is defined in the statute as December 31, 2026. That date is the same for every investor in any Opportunity Zone fund, no matter when you do it. That's number one. Number two is that date might change down the road. It could potentially get pushed back if any extension legislation gets passed. And there are some members of Congress that are working on extending this legislation. But suffice it to say for right now, you're going to get to defer recognition of that $100,000 Tesla gain until December 31, 2026. So for the next few tax returns you file the next few years, Michael, you won't have to pay a gain on that on that gain, it does eventually come home to roost when you file your 26 taxes in April of 2027. You will owe that, that some sort of amount on that $100,000. The amount that you owe depends on two things. It depends on the rate in 2026, and it depends on um, the performance of your qualified opportunity fund, because there are some ways that you could potentially get that amount reduced based on the basis amount of, of the gain in your, in your qualified opportunity fund. But I'll just stop there because then we're starting to get too technical and it, it kind of gets on a person-by-person uh, uh, -person basis. So Jimmy, at this point, I have deferred, but not eliminated the, the tax on my original gain. I ran this example, I realized $100,000 gain. Let's just assume tax rates are going to be the same forever into the future, which they won't be, but we'll assume that. So it's now uh, April 2027. So I'm going to now owe the gain on this, uh, the tax on this $100,000 gain. We'll assume it's 23.8%. Let's not worry about state taxes for now. Sure. So April 2027, I've got to write a check to the IRS for 23800 So I uh, deferred my, my tax liability, but did not eliminate it. Is that right? That's correct. Um, you you got what you got was an interest free loan from Uncle Sam. And by the way, this yep. benefit uh, was much more valuable if you made an opportunity zone investment back in 2018 or 2019. Today, you know, we're only because you were you were far away from that deferral date. Today, here we sit in August of 2023. If you make an investment, uh, you're only deferring the the gain for for three years instead of for you know five, six, seven, eight years. But it's still it's still better than nothing, I think. It's it's not a yeah. bad play. Um, yeah, an interest-free loan for a few years is is great. There's a time value of money, especially right now with interest rates high. Uh, being able to invest a chunk of money for a few years and you can pay off, uh, have money set aside then in 2027 to pay off that tax liability. Correct. And there are some qualified opportunity funds that take into account the fact that all of their investors are going to have this tax liability and some liquidity need to meet that tax liability in 2027. So a lot of funds are structured such that they have some sort of um, refinance distribution in 26, or they start cash flowing a little bit before 26. I mean, the closer you get to that to that deferral date, the less valuable it, this benefit is, and the less likely it is that the fund will be able to do something like that. But I know a lot of the ones that if you invested in early enough, there's, um, there's some access to liquidity through the fund, at least, 
in 26, 27 to pay that liability. And Jimmy, just to, to dive into one technical piece here. So when I invested initially, I only invested in my capital gain, yes. right? So let's say Correct. in this example, let's say I invested $100,000 in Tesla. I sold it for $200,000. So my capital gain was $100,000. That's the piece I have to invest, not the entire proceeds. So in this example, this simplified hypothetical example, I could set aside a chunk not of the gain, but of the, the return of capital or my initial investment, I could set that aside to pay that tax that's due in, in April 2027. That's correct. Yeah, you could you can buy yourself probably like a used Ferrari or a used Lamborghini <laughs> if you want to. I think you used to be able to get a Lamborghini or Ferrari for $100,000 maybe 30 years ago, but they're pretty expensive yeah, now. Or you, can, or you can sock it away and, you know, yeah, don't do anything too crazy with it because you are going to need some liquidity in 27 to pay that tax bill. That's a good point, Michael. Yeah, your idea is a lot more fun, uh, but maybe <laughs> mine's mine's a bit more responsible. Yours is more um, practical, okay. more responsible. Yeah. So we've I, I've paid my my tax bill due in in 2027. Uh, what's what happens next here in this timeline? Yeah. So um, in this timeline, I guess you, you you made the investment in what day is it today? It's August 11th, 2023. If you hold it until August 12 of 2024. That's when you can start selling your shares of the of the fund, uh, potentially back to the fund, potentially on the secondary market. Um, kind of depends how the fund is structured and and if if the fund itself has any sort of buyback provision from the investors. But some way you divest yourself of the fund on August twelfth, twenty thirty three or later. Uh, let's say you sell it for. I don't know. Let's say you hit a a three bagger. Let's say you sell it for for four hundred thousand dollars. You've got a you've got a three hundred thousand dollar capital gain. Is that what a three bagger is? I may have done the math wrong, but anyways, let's say you've got a three hundred thousand dollars. Let's say you've got a three hundred thousand dollar capital gain. You'd normally owe what about seventy something thousand dollars in capital gains tax on that. In this case, you owe nothing, and because you've been reporting it to the IRS every year that you've had this. Opportunity Zone Fund Investment, you held it for uh, more than 10 years. Um, so you you don't owe any capital gains tax liability on your transaction there whatsoever. On the, there, There's no tax bill on the appreciation. Congratulations. So that's, that's a, that's a yeah. heck of an investment, Michael. <laughs> yeah. So so that's where this this really, the tax incentive really comes in here is after 10 years, if you hold for, for 10 years, so we invested in in August 2023. Uh, if, ten years after that, whatever the capital gains realized on this investment is is tax free. Is that right, Jimmy? That's correct. Yeah. So yeah. there's two capital gains. Just to review, there's two capital gains that that we're doing stuff with. It's that initial capital gain from the sale of your Tesla stock in your example that gets deferred, but eventually comes home to roost. Okay, you're going to owe a tax bill on that. Normally, there are some ways for the fund to structure things so that that amount could get reduced or potentially eliminated as well. I won't get into the specifics of that. Then there's the second capital gain, which is uh, the appreciation on your investment within the Opportunity Zone Fund. Uh, so long as you hold it for more than 10 years, that gain is not taxed. Now, there's some other benefits as well, by the way. Actually, there, there's there's one more primary benefit that I haven't really gotten to yet, if you'll indulge me for one more moment here. Let's do it. So the majority of these investments are in real estate. Um, the majority of these opportunities on investments are, are, are real estate 
projects, real estate deals. Real estate uh, is highly tax advantaged for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is um, depreciation. You're able to depreciate the value of the assets, or if you do a cost segregation study, you're able to depreciate more quickly the value of um, the the assets within the assets, I guess, is, is a good way of saying it. The actual copper in the walls or the the roof all have different depreciation yeah, the schedules. furnitures and fixtures, sure. Exactly. So normally, though, when you sell a non-opportunity zone investment, after taking that depreciation, which offsets your income every year, that depreciation gets recaptured, and you'll owe a depreciation recapture bill um, when, you, when you go to sell that, that asset at some point in the future. Here's the beauty about opportunity zones. It's a hidden benefit that doesn't get discussed as often as it should, I think. There's no depreciation recapture if you, if you depreciate within a qualified opportunity fund. And as long as you hold that fund for at least 10 years in a day, more than 10 years, I think is how it's termed in the statute. Um, so that's just one more benefit. There's zero depreciation recapture, which can juice your returns even further. Yeah, and, and that's a big deal. I think depreciation recapture is usually taxed at 25%. Mm -hmm. So depending on how much of that depreciation you're able to use as an LP, uh, that can be a big tax bill that comes due when that depreciation is recaptured and being able to avoid it is pretty nice. Absolutely. So Jimmy, you're, you're convincing me here. I'm coming around to see your, your big, bold statement here we opened with at the, the top of the program. That this is the greatest tax incentive ever created. Uh, I think I, I'd summarize it as one, there's no limit on the size of the gain that you can roll into this. A lot of tax incentives are capped or uh, tax advantaged accounts are capped at how much you're able to get into it. There's really no limit on how much you're able to get into uh, an OZ. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you're only limited by the amount of capital gains the amount that you're able gain. to roll over. So if you can, but if you can generate unlimited capital gains, <laughs> then then it's virtually unlimited what you can do with opportunity zones. There's no cap on the amount of gains that you can roll over. That's correct. Yeah, For someone who has a, a sale of a business or a big liquidity event, uh, potential to get a, a lot of money into a tax advantage structure here. Uh, and then being able to defer that initial gain until right now, April 2027. And then knock on wood, hopefully you make a good investment here. The value uh, increases and you have another capital gain down the road after 10 years. And that is really where the big win comes because that's totally tax-free. Correct. You got it. Congratulations yeah, right. again. It's a heck of an investment. <laughs> yeah. So, so Jimmy, where can people go wrong here? Where do, you, where do investors get burned? What do they screw up? What are the mistakes that, that the listeners should be aware of? Yeah. So there's a few caveats that investors should be aware of before they make an opportunities on investment. One of them uh, has to do with the policy intent of opportunity zones. And the intent of the Opportunity Zone provision, the policy goals itself, is to incentivize um, new buildings, new investment, or substantially improved buildings within these Opportunity Zones. So what you can't do with an Opportunity Zone fund is buy and hold a cash-flowing asset, because uh, that wouldn't really improve the, the, these communities at all. So one of the big requirements of a qualified opportunity fund in order to stay in compliance with the program is that it has to put a new building into service or a new business. By the way, I, I, we've been talking about just real estate, but you can make business investments within opportunity sure. zones as well. Um, and there are a few examples of some business-based funds, venture capital-based funds I've worked with in the past, but the vast majority of these funds are real estate. So I'm kind of speaking just to the real estate audience here. 
um, for the purposes of simplicity for this podcast interview. But you need to put a, the Qualified Opportunity Fund needs to put a new building in service or substantially improve an existing building asset. And substantial improvement is defined as um, at least doubling the cost basis of the building value. Um, so excluding the land value, but at least doubling the, the, the value of the, the building um, within a certain time frame. Um, so that's one thing to consider is that this is not a core type or core plus type mm -hmm. of real estate holding. This is an opportunistic or development um, um, type of type of asset here. So the so risk going to be a, a lot of ground up construction or heavy value add where say if you buy something for five million bucks, you've got to put another five million at least into it to double the basis. Correct. Correct. Um, well, if you exclude the land value, let's say the the, the land is valued sure. at one million, point. you need to put four million into it to to double the value, to double the value of the building value. But yes, exactly right. So this is this is um the 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 risk return uh profile on this type of investment is very opportunistic. So one way investors go wrong here is that they don't consider that. They need to consider that, hey do I have room in my portfolio for something that's this risky? Um, maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is no. Maybe you need to talk about that with your financial advisor. Um, I think a second way people go wrong is they let the tax tail wag the dog. And mm. by that, I mean, yes, the tax incentive is amazing, but um, this great tax incentive doesn't make a bad deal a good deal necessarily. You need to look at the underlying asset. You need to look at the underlying deal. You need to look at how the fund is structured, what the fees are, do your due diligence just like you would on any other type of private equity real estate investment. The Opportunity Zone tax benefit is fantastic if it's a good deal. But remember that the tax benefit applies to capital gains. So there, there better be tech capital gains at the end of this. Otherwise, if right. it's just a bad investment, you don't even get any tax incentive really from making the investment other than the initial deferral on your Tesla stock, right, Michael? Um, and then I would say a third way that people go wrong is that they don't consider the investment horizon and the illiquidity. This isn't; These investments are illiquid investments and you're not likely to see your capital return to you for several years. And you, you're not gonna be able to completely get out of the fund for at least 10 years if you wanna take full advantage of all of the tax incentives. So I would say, I would say those are the three things that, that investors should watch out for before they write a check as an LP investor into an Opportunity Zone fund. Great, Jimmy. And let me ask you about, you talked a little bit about some of the, the tax complexity and the, the costs. How much of a headache is this from a, um, from a cost and a compliance uh, complexity perspective? What does it add to, uh, to investors' plates in that regard? Yeah. So I'm going to, again, we've, by the way, we've only really been talking about an investor who is an LP in somebody else's qualified opportunity fund. If you yeah. want to, if we have time, or maybe you can come, I, I can come back for another episode. We can talk about the complexity of setting up your own qualified opportunity fund. But let's let's put that aside for now. We're really only talking about uh, an investor like you, Michael, who's got that $100,000 Tesla gain in your example and rolls it over into somebody else's qualified opportunity fund. From an investor's perspective, when it comes to compiling your tax return every year, it does add a little bit of added complexity. That's part of the reason why I said in the beginning you should have a gain of at least $50,000. I think the headache really isn't worth it if, if you don't have a gain of at least $50,000. And 
And then also, practically speaking, most qualified opportunity funds have minimum investment amounts, and they usually start at $50,000, and they go up from there. Some funds have investment minimums as high as $250,000 or even a million dollars. Um, but there are plenty that I've worked with that have investment minimums that are low. <laughs> and by low, they, they, they always usually start at about $50,000. What you're going to have to deal with every year is getting a tax return from the qualified opportunity fund itself. And that's typically going to be in a K-1. Most of these are structured as partnerships. Sometimes they're structured as um, S-Corps or C-Corps, and you might get a 1099. Um, actually, I'm not sure what an S-Corp gets. Anyways, some of them will be 1099s, but, but most of them will be K-1s. You should just make sure that you coordinate with your CPA and maybe have your CPA coordinate with the fund manager and, and determine, hey, which tax forms are we getting? How many are we getting per year? There are some funds, by the way, who have, um, they, they do multi-asset investments in multiple states. So that might be a concern. How many K-1s are you going to get? Um, it really depends on how the fund is structured. So those are the that's really the major headache you're going to deal with is getting a K-1 from the fund and getting it in timely fashion uh, is usually easier said than done. Oftentimes these funds, they're supposed to have the K-1s to the investors closer to the beginning of the year, but sometimes the can gets kicked down the road because they're waiting on K-1s from the asset they're investing in. And oftentimes as an investor, you might not get your K-1 until um, well after the return due date in April. So you're likely going to have to extend your tax return, which by the way, for high net worth investors, particularly if they're business owners, shouldn't be anything too abnormal. Uh, most high net worth investors, family offices, the ultra wealthy, they file their initial return in April, but they usually have to, 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 to file some extension um, as well. I should say they, they, they pay their bill in April, but they have to file an extension and then they end up filing their actual return in October. That's probably going to be the case if you're going to make an investment into a qualified opportunity fund. Is, the is it worth it? I think so from the perspective of the tax benefit that you're going to receive. And, and probably if you're the type of investor who's ideally suited for this investment, you're going to be extending your return anyway for some other reason. So might as well. But, but I'd say that's the main headache is getting that K-1 um, each year from the, from the different funds that you're in. Yeah, great. Thanks, Jimmy. That's really, really helpful. Um, I want to ask you about, you, you mentioned earlier, we talked about 1031s um, a little bit. I think you mentioned the OZ program is pretty new. Uh, 1031s are not. They've been around forever. I think it's it might be close to 100 years that the 1031 uh, has been around. So what should investors think about if they have a gain? It's kind of an either or, right? They can do an opportunity zone investment or they can do a 1031 how do you think about the kind of weighing the pros and cons of OZ versus doing a 1031? Or what are the what are the differences between those two options? Yeah, great question. Uh, and you're right, the 1031 exchange has been around for, I think it's a little over 100 years now. So um, every CPA in the country, every real estate broker in the country has a lot of muscle memory, so to speak, about how to do a 1031 exchange. There's huge amounts of infrastructure around 1031s, um, you just you need a qualified intermediary to do one and they all know how to do them perfectly. Whereas opportunity zones, they are a little bit newer, right? They're only been around for five years. There are some national and regional accounting firms all over the country that do have a specialist or a team of specialists devoted to opportunity zones and investing in qualified opportunity funds. But chances are, if you just call your local CPA who's you know on Main Street in the town you're in, they might not have heard of this program or they might have only um, heard of it tangentially, and they might not really know what it is. <laughs> they might say, I don't know, I'll have to check with 
with with my main office and and get back to you. So that that that's a little bit of a of a disconnect there um, that investors just have to deal with. But to get back to your original question, um, the differences between the two programs. First of all, look at what type of gain that you have. And and again, both of these programs, you need to start with a gain. Um, if it's not a real estate gain, the 1031 or the DST is not available to you. So then you're really only looking at opportunity zones. So in my example with my my Tesla stock, the 1031 isn't an option. It's only Correct. for real estate gains. Correct. Yeah. So now, now, but now let's consider, okay, you do have a, a gain that's been triggered from the sale of a real estate investment property. Um, then you've got some options here. You can do a 1031 or you can do an opportunity zone investment. Um, the risk profile of these two couldn't be more different, really. Like, like again, an opportunity zone fund, you have to invest in something that's going to be ground up construction or substantial rehab. So that's going to be a lot riskier. Um, it's really a capital appreciation play. With a 1031 or particularly a, a DST, um, you're really looking at something much more stable, a core, maybe a core plus if it's through a 1031 and not through a DST. And then you're, 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 you're looking at capital preservation and cash flow as your goals there. Um, as well as there's the, the place-based restrictions on the OZ side, is that I was, right? And those I was going to get, yeah, I was yeah. going to get to that next. And by the way, there's probably like 10 or 12 different dimensions that these two programs are different or similar. And I'll just touch upon the main ones. That is the next one though, Michael, is that a 1031, you can do one anywhere in the country, whereas opportunity zones are restricted to these 8,700 plus census tracts. Um, and then the timing on them is similar, but a, but a little bit different, but suffice it to say, they both have a 180 day clock. The opportunity zone fund is a little bit easier to do because you basically can do it yourself. You can, mm -hmm. you can just write a check directly to a qualified opportunity fund and be done with it. Um, whereas with a 1031, you have to go through what's known as a qualified intermediary, or if you're familiar with the industry, it's also deemed a QI sometimes uh, that helps you do the transaction. So there's there's a middleman you have to work with, um, which can be good if, if you if you if you need that help. But just something else to to consider. And then there's there's a lot of other ways, but I'll stop there. And and uh, you can you can ask me if you see if you have any other questions for me. So, Jimmy, the, the last thing I'd like to ask you, something we've kind of glossed over here, is we've, we've assumed that these are, uh, we've been discussing for LPs, people are going to become, have a gain, are going to become an LP in an existing, in someone else's qualified opportunity fund. Right. And I think we will have to have you back to discuss the other route, which is you set up your own qualified opportunity fund. Um, we've kind of glossed over that, though. How can people find out about the, the different qualified opportunity funds out there? I know this is something that uh, Opportunity DB does a great job of is helping uh, investors who, you know, like like in my the hypothetical me with my my Tesla gain, uh, find a place to park that to, to roll over that capital gain. Yeah, great question. So we have a variety of resources on our website. We have a directory of every qualified opportunity fund that we've been able to find, uh, which you can find at db.opportunitydb.com. We also offer a free guide if any of your listeners want to download the free guide to investing in opportunity zones. And that can be found at opportunitydb.com slash download. And then well, I think your uh, listeners of this podcast would be remiss if they didn't listen to my podcast, Michael. So you can listen to the Opportunity Zones podcast at opportunitydb.com slash podcast or 
just search on iTunes or Spotify or YouTube for Opportunity Zones podcast and, and I'll pop up there. Great. Thanks, Jimmy. And for anyone who was not scribbling down these URLs, we'll put everything in the show notes uh, so you can jump on over there. Uh, Jimmy also hosts an event three times a year, OZ Pitch Day, uh, which is a fantastic event, a way to see qualified opportunity funds, exactly what it sounds like, pitch their deals to investors who may have realized the capital gain. So we'll put a link to the next uh, OZ Pitch Day in the in the show notes as well. Uh, Jimmy, this has been incredible. Uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge on OZs. Uh, I think it's lived up to the the hype of the greatest tax incentive ever created, or at least I'm I'm convinced more so now than I was uh, when we started this. So uh, I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you would leave us a rating or a review on Apple or Spotify. It really helps to spread the word. Uh, Jimmy, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Take care. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.